I want you to consider that uh, over 2,013 years ago, wow, just just consider that, over 2,000 years ago, in a small Jewish city called Jerusalem, a city that was under the control of Roman government and Roman authority, a man was executed outside of the city. That day came and went. And in the scheme of human history, when you understand all that happened on that day, the Roman Empire had authority over the Egyptian dynasties. It had taken over what Greek uh, power had once owned and ruled, and now Roman Empire was all over. Uh, There was some dynasties in China as well. The world was moving along thousands of years. Different governments, different authorities. The Jews had been reduced to basically just one holy city in the sense of Jerusalem. Their kingdom had divided and split and now conquered by Rome. And in this city, they found this man that the uh, religious officials wanted to make sure he was dead. He was causing too much trouble and commotion. He, like many others before him, said he was the Messiah, the Savior of the Jews. Just another one in a long line of those who said they'd save Israel. They felt it would be best if they could just kill this guy, get him out of the way. So they held a mock trial, and they arrested him, and uh, they were able to scatter his followers. They took him, nailed him to a tree with a couple other men who were going to be crucified that day. And in the process of crucifixion, some unusual things took place. The sky darkened, and some of the Jewish people said that the veil in the temple was ripped, and He died and they took his body down and in nine hours uh, this event was done and time moved on and the next day came and the next day came and the world went on as it should and would. Now you would think if God was going to do something that was going to change the face of human history, he'd do it a little more mm, showy. A little more evident to all people who were living on the earth at that time. But what we have to recognize with the death of Jesus Christ is that it wasn't necessarily about who could see it or witness it. This was something that was being done between God and His Son in the cosmos. Throughout all human history, it was something that wasn't for spectators, it was something so intimate and deep between God in His own being that the Word became flesh, dwelt among us, and took the sins of man upon it. So that God was giving His Son for the sake of the judgment of sin. It's interesting that in world history, as you look at the world and you consider all the land and the people living at that time, that it was just some little town, some little city that this took place in. Most of the people on planet Earth had no idea who Jesus was and no idea that he died and that he was going to rise from the dead. So how is it 2,000 years later, the message of this man is flooding the entire earth? Was it because of that event? Yes. Was it because there were witnesses of that event? Well, yes. Those who were witnesses wrote it down. 
But really what took place was the witness of those who experienced the resurrected Lord. Now, in human history, we have basically secular history, we have three accounts of Jesus outside of the Gospels and those who were followers of the Lord. There's Josephus, the Jewish historian, lived at the time of Jesus. He made a reference of Jesus in the antiquity to the Jews, and he spoke of Jesus who was called Messiah among the people. That was his reference to Jesus of Nazareth. There was Tacitus, the great Roman historian. He mentioned Jesus specifically in his annals, and uh, he spoke of the word Christians, and Christ from whom they derived their name was condemned to death by the procurator, uh, procurator Pontius Pilate in the reign of the emperor Tiberius. So you've got reference to a literal historical Jesus who these Christians follow, but that's it. Last of all, you have Sertonius in his book, The Twelve Caesars, and he describes a messianic movement of folks who followed one called Jesus and uh, speaks of during the reign of Claudius, A.D. 41 to 54, he wrote that he drove the Jews out of Rome who were uh, writing because of Christus. That's it. That's pretty minimal, wouldn't you say? So secular history records the man Jesus. They say he had followers. They say he was labeled Messiah. And that's what secular history has for us. Secular history has gone on for thousands and thousands of years. Jesus lived, he died, he was crucified, dead and buried, rose on the third day, and ascended into heaven. But for the most of the world, they're ignorant of this. Does that sound like a plan to you to save the world? Really? Come on. Was that, is that the most effective way God could do this to save human souls from perishing in eternal damnation? That in some little city at one particular time and age, a man would die within a day, rise and ascend to heaven within 40, and that's it. It didn't seem to make that big of a splash among the historians and the people of that day. So I would really have to think, is this the smartest thing to do? Is this the wisest, most profound thing that could happen? And so I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 as we look at what is called the foolishness of the cross. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter one, we're going to start at verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it is written, "I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart." Verse 20. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly or the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Let me stop right there. 
Consider this. This is God's plan. I'm going to do something so crazy, so foolish, it's going to confound the wisdom of man. And, I, and if I could put it in terms of those who are against Christianity and those who are opposed to us, we're using the word foolish, another word for it, and modern vernacular is stupid. This is really stupid. Foolish is that which is unwise, which, which seems just stupid. And so what's happening here, Paul is saying that since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It could not, you see, it could not understand God under his own intellect. It pleased God through the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God that through our foolish preaching, that's how people are going to get saved. More importantly, what he's saying, it's through the foolishness of what we're preaching that people are going to get saved. Now hold on to that for a minute. Come on. Are you with me on this? What he's saying is what we're preaching, the cross, is absolutely foolish to people. And God chose to use a really foolish act to get people saved. That's what he's saying. This thing, in Galatians 5.11, he says, the cross is offensive. And it is meant to be an offense. It is stupid and offensive. How dare you say it's stupid? But that's the language he's saying. It's foolish. People think it's stupid. This cross. He's hanging on a tree. For 2,000 years we've been preaching it. Now, now let me ask you something. Has it been effective? Yes, it has. Isn't that God? Isn't that good? Can I get a witness as to how many of you were brought in by that foolish message of the cross? It confounded us. It identified us. And it was so crazy, it captivated us. He said, what I have chosen to do is use the foolishness of what we preach to save the world. Like I, I said in the beginning, it wasn't the, it, it was, uh, how can I put it? Yes, it was the act of what Christ did on the cross that bore the sins of mankind, but it wasn't, it wasn't that everybody got to see that. That is saving people generation after generation after generation after generation. We don't have a video of that. We don't have photos of this. We can't say, see, here's the picture of what happened. No, what we have to do is tell people about it. And this is our opportunity at this season to tell people again about the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, what is your response going to be from people? That's stupid. That's foolish, and that offends me. That is no different than the result that the apostles got when they began preaching it. Paul says this in Galatians 5.11, But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The cross is offensive to Jews and to Gentiles. It's foolishness to the secular world. So let's go on. That's exactly what Paul's saying. He says this, For since the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of 
the foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. For, verse 22, Jews demand signs and Greek want wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Come on, God, what are you doing? I mean, when I present the gospel, I try to present it as best as I can, the smartest, most articulate way I can, with intelligence and wisdom. I try to present it in such an argument that I'd captivate people with how miraculous and amazing it is. Don't you? I've worked hard at this. I try to discern what people are thinking, and I try to figure out how can I get in there, and how can I tell them about Jesus, and how can I just cleverly hook them in to the wisdom of the cross. And Paul says they're seeking the power of God. They want, the Jews want to see a sign. They want miracles. They want signs and wonders and power. And we say we've got to have that if we want to get people saved. And the Greeks, they want wisdom. They want philosophy. They want a way that this so makes sense that from the beginning of time, it is so clever and genius that we could present such an argument that their logic would just, oh my gosh, this is, you're right. And Paul says it's none of that. In fact, what it does, it offends them horribly. Have you ever tried to win someone that you've offended? You know, come to my way of thinking, you who are really stupid and going to hell. This is not appreciated. You usually don't get good results. If you're a salesman and you say to the people who you're trying to sell something to, you are really ignorant of what you want. You don't know what you want. You're kind of foolish. You don't get it. You offend them, but that's what the cross does. The, the cross offense, and we've got to run, understand why. We've got to take a look at it to see why it is foolishness and folly. Let me, let me help you understand what the cross or crucifixion looked like to the Jews and to those Gentiles at this time. Now, it's foolish and offensive. Justin Martyr said this, a very early uh, church father, and he was writing into the defense of Christianity. And he's writing to the one person. The one person gives a response of what Justin Martyr had said about Christianity. And, and he's opposed to it. And, and uh, Trifo says this, We are aware that the Messiah must suffer, but that he had to be crucified? He had to die a death of such shame and dishonor? A death cursed by the law? Prove this to us, for we are totally unable to receive this. Can't buy it. Mm -mm. All right, I understand Isaiah 53, he's got to suffer, he's got to die, all this, but no, not on a cross, come on. You see, crucifixion at that time was so heinous, so horrible, that the Jews and the Gentiles saw it as something absolutely horrendous. That God, you're come on, Christian, (laughs) you're saying that God came in flesh and died that kind of a death? That's stupid. God would never do that. That's just stupid. Now this is what holds up a lot of Jews today too. See the prophecies, see this, and uh, uh, consider all these things. But God becoming a man, dying 
On a cross? No. No. Justin Martyr uh, went on further to say, they say that our madness consists in the fact that we place a crucified man in second place after the eternal God. A crucified man is a cursed man from God, according to the Jews. In the book of Deuteronomy, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. So when you say to the Jews that God became flesh, now that's hard enough in the first place, but then when you say he died on a cross, and then you say he rose from the dead and we worship him, no! He's cursed. If he died on a cross, then God cursed him. How can I worship a cursed being that God himself cursed? Are you crazy? Yes. That's exactly it. He was accursed. Paul even uses that argument in the book of Galatians. And he said, yes, he was taken outside of the city and cursed. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He became accursed. In fact, all the curse of sin was put on him. That's the point. Now you get it. I don't get it. That doesn't make sense. Actually, in God's economy, it does. So, the Romans also mocked the idea of following a crucified man. There's a caricature you can see in the catacombs and in different places where they drew a donkey's head on top of the crucified Lord. And because that donkey's head is the symbol of a servant, and the caption sarcastically says over this man's grave, Alaximus worships God. They're making fun of him. The point is that how could this donkey's head on a man be worshipped as God? (laughs) Are you kidding me? You people worship the stupidest God I've ever seen. Because you know that anybody that's been crucified is a low-life wretch. Crucifixion in the secular world was held for those who were the worst of all criminals, common servants. A Roman citizen could not be crucified. This was for the outcast, thief, liar, stinking bum. So associated with crucifixion is the worst kind of death you could have it's an offense (laughs) and you people worship (laughs) you people worship this god who was crucified he's a loser see that's the attitude that they're in contention with being mocked now we all get offended isn't it interesting how we all get offended the way they talk about jesus right but folks God chose this offense to offend them. And usually when someone's offended, what do they in turn do? Offend you. But we should be unoffendable in this. They mock God. They mock Christ. They mock the crucifixion because they are ignorant. It was meant to offend them. We are, as the church, especially nowadays, we're trying to make the gospel unoffendable we're trying to make the gospel something that doesn't offend anyone you should really like jesus when in fact what paul's saying is he offends every human being 
by the way he died and why he died is an offense to everyone. Why are we trying to take the sting out of God's plan? Why are we trying to take away the genius of God's intelligence out of taking something that seems so foolish and stupid? Why are we trying to change His plan? Right? We're we're trying to take the cross out of Christianity. And God never intended that. God fully intended it to offend everyone's sensibility. Now the cross or crucifixion was used all the way back in Babylonian times. Uh, The Medes and the Persians came in and King Darius, you'll remember this from the book of Daniel, had used crucifixion. He had developed it quite well. From him, then the Phoenicians came in. The Phoenicians were fierce warrior people. They would win a battle and they would line the seashore with the, the, the people's bodies on crosses all across to show they conquered the city. Perse- uh, a crucifixion was something so ha- awful and heinous. Uh, mass executions in 600 B.C. The, Rome's, the Romans continued to use it and they used it again as kind of a, a, a reference for the lowest grade criminal possible. That if you're going to offend Rome, this is what's going to happen to you. You dare broke a Roman, ro- uh, break a Roman law, you will be crucified. And so, basically, when you walked by and saw someone hanging on a pole, you knew they're the scum of the earth. And this is the sense of crucifixion. This is the sense. Now, again, according to the Jews, for the Jews to see this, it was more of an offense because Deuteronomy says that cursed is all who hang on a tree. And so, that was even more of an offense Because as they hung on the tree, they had no opportunity to get on their knees and repent. So they were in fact double cursed. Not only are they cursed for hanging on that tree, they're cursed because they could not get to the ground to kneel and repent before God. They're withheld from that, so they will undoubtedly die in their sin and be damned. So here... We come along, here the Christian church comes along and says, the Messiah has come. Hallelujah, Messiah has come. The Savior of Israel has come. This is wonderful. Messiah is here to take our sickness, our infirmities, our disease, to take our sin away from us. And the Messiah is here. That's wonderful. What's the sign of it? A crucifixion. He died on the cross. What? Back up, Jack. You're telling me that the God and creator of the universe came in the flesh and died a cursed death hanging on a tree? Mm, Can't buy it. And what did they always ask Jesus for, the Jews? A sign. Give us a sign. Give us a sign. Paul says that the cross is a stumbling block. The Jews were looking for something spiritual, supernatural, sorry, spiritual natural. (laughs) Supernatural. They wanted a sign. 
They wanted to see something happen that was supernatural. Show us some power. Now, how much power did Jesus show while hanging on that cross? How much did he manifest on that cross? How much power did he manifest? Nothing. Nothing. Everybody's watching. What's he going to do? This is it. What's he going to do? Nothing. He wails and he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm thirsty. Father, forgive them. That's your God. That's all you got. That's it. But he did say there'd be one sign he would give Israel, wasn't it? It wasn't at the cross. It was after the cross. The sign of Jonah. That after three days he would raise this body up. He showed them that sign. And the power of that sign. But they can't get past the fact that this Messiah hung on a cross dead. Now, the Greeks don't see anything intellectual about this. Where's the wisdom, where is the understanding in all of this? But here's the thing. The cross doesn't appeal to any of those things. It's a stumbling block and foolishness to man. The cross does not meet people at their request. It offends us with our need. This is the point of its offense. The cross does not try to meet your questions, your, your uh, requests. I need this from you, God. I need that from you, God. God is not here to make sure you get what you uh, are asking for. God is here by offending all of us by what we need. See, no man will confess what he truly needs. A Savior. He had to demonstrate that. So what the cross actually does is this. Number one, it condemns the world to death. You see, Christ hanging on a, on a cross says, the essential issue of mankind is this. We are all under the power of sin and death. Christ came to meet us at our greatest need. Our greatest need is not that Rome is acting superior to Israel. Our greatest need is that we don't need another miracle. Our greatest need is that we don't need an intellectual understanding of nature and God and man. What we need is saving from the power of sin and death. What that does is say to everybody, you are all under the condemnation and guilt of sin and death. We are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. This is what the cross does. It offends every human being by telling them you're a sinner bound for hell and eternal damnation. You can't get around that. Amen? Are you with me? Do you understand this? As you're going out there preaching, brothers and sisters, as you're sharing the gospel with people, basically, this is the point every person must come to grips with. 
I don't care if you dance around it and put pretty music to it and color it all different ways. They're not saved until they come to the Savior hanging on a cross for them. So do you want to postpone that as long as you can? However you want to creatively bring them to it, they got to come here. And this is why the cross offends. And the cross says, there's no one else that has done this for God. There's no other way to salvation except through the cross. And this is why we have less people saved of recent in the United States is because the church has stopped preaching the cross. We're not telling people what the cross offends and tells everyone. You must come to Christ in order to be saved because you are a sinner. But I was a good person. I don't know how many funerals I perform where the majority of the people sitting in that audience think, you're going to heaven because you were good. Most of America believes they're all going to heaven because they're basically good people. And the cross utterly offends everyone who says that. There is none good, no, not one. And that Christ had to do this, the most heinous form of death, so that everyone would understand He did that for you and I. Oh my gosh. If there's a day that we ever get used to the cross, shame on us. If we would ever consider the triviality of the cross, if we would ever think, yeah, I got that. My God, the day we die, we should still be on our face thanking God for the wisdom of the cross. Second thing it does is it reveals the love of God. Come on. Paul said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you understand this? He took on the shame of the world. The most shameful death you could ever have, he took it on. This is the Lord of glory. This is the Lord who made the wood provided for that cross. This is the Lord who made the ore that was forged into the nails that pierced his hands. This is the God who put every picker on that picker bush that ended up on his head, piercing him and making him bleed. This is the God that made everything and all the people surrounding him that day who shoved a spear up in his chest. This is the God of all glory and majesty who is hanging on that tree demonstrating how much and how far He will go in His love for us, mankind, the world. That He would die for us and say, Father, forgive them. Call God's love foolish. Call God's demonstration of His love for us stupid. Call it not a good plan. No, I'm sorry. There's no greater love than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. How much more that Christ laid down his life for a world that killed him. This demonstrates the love of God in such an amazing way. The cross. The Jews wanted power. You'll never see the power of love like this, ever. This saves people out of every situation they can imagine. This demonstration of love. It touches every human heart. 
penetrates past our own wisdom and intellect and our desire for power. Also, it's primal in its purpose. What do I mean that it's primal? It's the core issue of existence, life and death. Jesus died so that we would have life. This is the key. This is the whole issue. Why do we see a man hanging on a cross, suffering and dying? Because that's the story of man. We're all going to die. God came to meet death on that tree and become the tree of life for us. It exchanges our identity through death. You see, last of all, what the cross tells us is we have nothing to offer God. We've got nothing to bring to the table. It is only if we would die with Christ that we will have eternal life that we have to be taken out of Adam and put in Christ, and that his nature has to be put in us because anything in my nature is flawed. I've got nothing to offer him. The cross is an offense because it tells everybody, hey, good effort. It's not good enough. We've got nothing to offer a holy God. We are so lost and depraved in sin that we are under the weight and condemnation of it got nothing to offer him and the cross says the only thing that you have to offer is to come to the cross and let christ heal and deliver you that's why the cross is offensive but with these reasons it's the only way someone can be saved these these reasons are why god did what he did He didn't come to free the Jews from the Romans. He came to free all mankind from the power of sin and death. He didn't come to be intellectual with those who are smart. He came to save every human being, no matter what their IQ was, to come into the rich knowledge of who God is. He came to save all of us. He came to show us that apart from him, we are eternally lost. And he did that at the greatest cost of his own life. At the shame and the foolishness of the cross, he did that for you and I. And I conclude with this. 1 Corinthians 1, further down, verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the world. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble of birth. But God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what was low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who because to us the wisdom of God He becomes to us the wisdom of God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption, so that, as it's written, let no man boast, but if he boasts, boast in the Lord. The cross is something for us to boast about. We glory in the cross, and that causes a real separation from the world. 
They are offended by it. They trip over it. They don't understand it. It's foolish. But we glory in it. We understand the wisdom in it. We see the demonstration of God's love. And I will forever glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Stand with me this morning.